Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Late last year, poet and Yale Law School graduate Dwayne Betts came to our studio to talk about his third collection of poetry, Felon. The label Felon described Betts after he was sentenced to eight years in prison for a carjacking when he was just 16 years old. But he told me it's more than a label that follows him and other ex-offenders. Post-incarceration is always there. So it's not you do your time and you move on necessarily, but it's like how do we create a system in which um, folks could build bridges instead of, you know, burn them down and where the community could build bridges instead of burning them down. Today, where we live, we'll learn how some Connecticut policymakers are working to help ex-offenders restart their lives. Coming up, we'll hear from State Representative Robin Porter and from a member of the ACLU Smart Justice Coalition about legislative proposals to reduce barriers, including ways to enforce housing and employment anti-discrimination laws. And later, help doesn't have to start only when someone completes his or her print prison sentence. We talk with the Connecticut Department of Correction about its reentry measures that begin inside some of the state prisons. You can join our conversation too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome my first guest into the studio. Kel Lyons is a Report for America Corps member who covers criminal justice and mental health for the Connecticut Mirror. Uh, Kel, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so when we think about criminal justice in our state, there's a lot of focus in recent years about how to help ex-offenders transition So generally, when we're looking at the state of Connecticut, when we think about ways to rehabilitate offenders, where are some of the gaps that you've discovered? Well, there are some gaps in terms of folks who get out and don't have an ability to put their lives back together when they're out of prison. Um, What we're really grappling with right now is sort of when a prison sentence ends or your time under state supervision ends. And so we're trying to look at ways to expand opportunities for folks when they get out so that they can get housing and so they can get education and employment and life insurance coverage, uh, things like that. When someone completes their sentence and returns back to their community or hopes to get to their community, what are some of the housing options for for them? Well, a lot of individuals, there are 28 halfway houses across the state um, that people can try to get into. Um, There are these sober houses that folks can try to get to as well. Um, But as far as securing their own apartments or living situations, it can be challenging. Um, A lot of folks who are in the system, if they've been in and out through this revolving door, they might have frayed some relationships with family members. Um, They might uh, be suffering from mental health issues. Uh, They might have issues with drug and alcohol addiction. And so when they try to go out and secure their own housing, it can be challenging for them to, to get a landlord who's willing to rent to them. And that seems to be a pretty major gap that we're thinking about now in the session. You mentioned there are 24 halfway houses around the state, also uh, sober houses. I can't imagine that's an ideal living situation for somebody who, again, is trying to restart their lives. I mean, what is that like? How long are they there? Well, the their time there tends to tends to vary. Um, but in these 20 houses, you tend to have 
folks who are, are challenged because they can't see their family often as much. There's been some reporting about that. Um, there's also they're also less than ideal situations because I've heard that they don't have a lot of privacy. Um, it's just not ideal as you're getting out and you're in a vulnerable state when you get out of prison after you'd spent time behind bars. Um, it can be really challenging to live in these situations and to kind of thrive and, and find a job and, and to balance all of these things, these spinning plates at once. I mentioned that you also cover mental health for the Connecticut Mirror. You did a story in the last few months about, again, trying to connect ex-offenders with mental health resources. And there was a really surprising statistic in that story that you did. Of the people released from prison, 54% of them are dying from drug overdoses? Well, it's it's that of the people who are dying from drug overdoses, they are now making up a larger share of the individuals who who spend time behind bars. So there's this bigger overlap between Mm -hmm. folks who are suffering from addiction and who overdose when they get out. And there's a variety of reasons for that, right? You know, when you're incarcerated, um, your tolerance tends to go down. So if you come out and you use again, Mm -hmm. then you're at risk of dying if there's something in those drugs like fentanyl that, you know, you hadn't used before. Um, There's also, there are also Fears generally, um, well, there are discussions about expanding Medicaid eligibility for people in the session right now to try to connect them with resources when they get out so that they're better able to uh, manage their, their drug and alcohol problems. You're hearing Kel Lyons in our studio. He's a Report for America core member who covers criminal justice and mental health for the Connecticut Mirror. As today, we look at measures within the Connecticut General Assembly to try to help ex-offenders. Also, what programs exist on the outside. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, you mentioned barriers to finding housing uh, because of someone's criminal record. Can we talk more about some of the other barriers that people who have not experienced prison, uh, may not even understand that they're there for people who are trying to, again, restart their lives. Sure. So there are something like 569 collateral consequences of a criminal record, according to a outside agency called the Council of State Governments. Um, th- th- most of those are employment-related, about two-thirds. There are also a lot that can affect individuals' ability to qualify for life insurance or to get life insurance. Um, there are challenges with trying to get them to get certification programs for various various jobs. Um, there are a lot of issues with folks who apply for a job and are denied a job, and it's sort of murky. They're not explicitly told it's because of their record, but they there is a feeling that they have been discriminated against because of that criminal record. Um, but a lot of them, according to this council, have to do with specifically with employment, which I think as we're talking about this at the legislature, there's this idea that we can unlock a large segment of the economy that's just inactive right now because folks aren't able to get back to work when they get out. And it really seems like we're questioning what the both the purpose of prison and state supervision is, whether it's punishment or rehabilitation, and also really when a prison sentence ends um, and whether it should be for life or whether it should end and somebody should be allowed to or helped to get back on their feet when they get out. Mm. Connecticut has been on, again, the last several years looking at criminal justice reform. Does Connecticut stand out in terms of having these repeated discussions year after year within their legislature of ways to remedy some of, of these challenges? I think so. Under the previous governor, there was a lot of effort to get folks out of prison and to really kind of bring down um, the number of individuals who are both in prison and under state supervision. And we've seen that. We've seen parole go down. We've seen prison populations go down, crime go down, arrests go down. 
Now we're starting to look at, well, what happens when they get out? Just because they're not locked up anymore doesn't mean that they don't need help. It doesn't mean that they're still not branded with a scarlet letter because of this record. And so now the legislature seems to be grappling um, with what do we do when they're out of prison and we're trying to figure out how they can get back to being productive members of society. Uh, anyone who gets locked out of finding a, a secure place to live or to even have a job, you know, how does that impact an ex-offender when we look at recidivism rates uh, in the state of Connecticut? Yeah, so there's a lot of thoughts about how if, if people are locked out of or are unable to get housing or employment, that they're more likely to commit more crimes down the line. And our recidivism rates right now, there was a study done um, by the state which found that 60% of folks over three years were rearrested. Um, but recidivism rates are sort of tricky because everybody kind of has a different definition, whether or not that's a new crime or a new conviction rate or whether or not you're being sent back because of a technical violation under probation or parole. Um, the nice thing about this state data is it sort of broke that down and talked about how 60% were rearrested within three years, but 45% were newly convicted. Um, and even then, there's some nuance in the numbers in that if you look at individuals who have more education or they're older, they are less likely to commit more crimes down the line, as well as if they have lengthier, the lengthier number of sentences, if they've been sentenced multiple times, they're also more likely to go to be back into the system. So I think when we're talking about giving individuals more ability to get jobs and housing, we're trying to kind of nip that. We're trying to reduce the recidivism rate, mm -hmm. both by giving them more opportunities to get back on their feet, but also, I would argue, to get folks who you know, are aging up and therefore less likely to commit crimes and get back in the system to give them less of an opportunity or they're, give them more opportunities to stay out of the system so that they don't put themselves at risk of getting back into mm -hmm. it. What, is there a debate going on within among lawmakers? Because we hear it often uh, within society that uh, people feel like if you look at someone's past record, it is a pretty good indication of the type of person they are. And so if a landlord wants to find out if someone has a criminal record before renting to them, or if a prospective employer wants to know if somebody has a criminal record, is there an argument there for, th for those people that say this is about also public safety? Yeah. So a lot of the concerns um, on the, in this session about both collateral consequences bills and about uh, clean slate legislation have to do with public safety and kind of managing this, this walking this line between keeping people safe and giving it, people a second chance. And, you know, uh, employers are worried about lengthening the hiring process if they have to be subjected to some bills that are in the legislature. There are also concerns generally um, about safety of specific populations like elderly populations or children. And I, I think the bills that we're talking about are pretty fluid. They can be changed. Um, but we're really talking about, in some capacity, a pretty lengthy amount of time that's come between when somebody was convicted and when they're looking for help. So in, there's a bill in the session right now called Clean Slate, which was introduced originally by the governor this year. And he released a proposal that would automatically clear the criminal records of Class C and D misdemeanors, so really low-level stuff. Uh, then a few weeks later, Senator Gary Winfield came out with another bill that was a lot broader. There were Class C, D, and E felonies, and there were also um, all misdemeanors. There were some exceptions to those, but it was a much wide-ranging bill. So, But in both of those proposals, there's a seven-year waiting period between the convictions. So that's a pretty long time, and, and the research shows us that 
people who stay conviction-free or crime-free for a certain number of years, they get less likely to commit more crimes down the line. And in some, some researchers said that they're actually less likely than people without records to commit crimes down the line. So seven years is a pretty long time, and it's also longer than the three to five years that is currently in place by the Board of Pardons and Parole if you want to apply in person. And I hear that process can be very burdensome and complicated, and sometimes people need to hire attorneys, and that can be a challenge as well if someone doesn't have the resources. Yeah, and a lot of folks have said that it's really onerous, and it's also, somebody said that it was like being retried again, and it's also worth noting that a a lot of people who've been through the system and who have convictions, they're kind of pushed into the system because of unresolved trauma and unaddressed mental health needs, and to really kind of relive that in pretty serious detail for the Board of Pardons and Parole is challenging for some people, and so this would give them an opportunity that they'd have to wait longer, but it would be automatically cleared. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, again, as we talk about uh, new proposals to help reform the criminal justice system, also uh, to help ex-offenders not be discriminated against because of their criminal record. You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Valentine's calling from Hartford. Go ahead. Hello? Yes, go ahead. Um, This is Valentine. Um, I'd like to mention two programs that are in place that are a help for people coming out of prison. Uh, One is the Welcome Center, which is in the back of City Hall. You uh, have to approach it from the street behind City Hall. And there are, it's particularly for end-of-sentence folks, but I think there's some services available for everybody. They help you find housing. They help you with some immediately needed supplies. And the other one is Hang Time, which happens Every other Thursday, strictly, not second and third, fourth or first and third, but every other Thursday at the Connecticut's, um, the Peace Center of Connecticut on High Shop Avenue. And it's from six to eight. It includes a meal, usually pizza. And formerly incarcerated people can come and tell their stories. Anybody can come. You don't have to be incarcerated. And just meet other people in the same situation and um, it's it's very welcoming. If you say say to the room you just got out, you'll get a hand of applause. Um, so I'd like to talk about those two. Well, thank you for letting us know, Valentine. And those are two programs that you mentioned that are in Hartford. We'll try to find links and, and put them on uh, our website or tweet them at, at where we live. But before we uh, head out of, with uh, Cal Lyons again for a Port for America Corps member, before we head to break, um, when we think about this short session, the likelihood of some of these measures that you mentioned that could be passed. Well, Everything is a little up in the air right now, given with the concerns over the coronavirus. But I think thinking about these bills as concepts, what we're really doing, we're really grappling with at the session is, you know, we're pushing a conversation forward, and I'm hoping to kind of telegraph that to the state, um, about the sort of philosophical role that prisons Mm -hmm. and criminal records play in our society. Some people are, are thinking that that is an indicator of keeping the public safe. Others are thinking, well, if we help people to clear those, then that will keep the public safe over a longer time. We're really trying to think when a a sentence should actually end. Should it end when somebody walks out of a prison, when they finish their parole or probation, or should it end, should it continue for the rest of their life? And I think that those aren't questions that are going to go away at the end of this session, regardless of what happens with Clean Slate, and regardless of what happens with the collateral consequences bill. 
um, we're kind of going to be thinking about these for a long, long time. Kel Lyons, again, is a Report for America Corps member who covers criminal justice and mental health for the Connecticut Mirror. Kel, thank you for your time. We'll tweet out some links to your stories. Thank you. Appreciate it. After the break, we'll learn about more about this proposal to reduce the collateral consequences ex-offenders face. Also, State Representative Robin Porter will also be joining us. Have you been involved in the state criminal justice system? What was your experience once you returned home? Join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on efforts to reform the criminal justice system in Connecticut. Now, one bill the Connecticut General Assembly is considering would prevent people from being discriminated against because of their criminal record. To tell us more, uh, joining us now in studio uh, first is Shelby Henderson. She's a member of the Smart Justice Campaign with the ACLU of Connecticut. This is a campaign that includes people who've been formerly incarcerated who are now working to reduce the state's jail and prison population and to end racial disparities in Connecticut's justice system. Shelby, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So we are talking about, uh, again, ways to help ex-offenders, but you're actually doing the work trying to uh, get the word out about, you know, what it's like to transition um, after serving time. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Are you from Connecticut? What was your upbringing like? Yeah, I am. Uh, My name is Shelby. I am a graduate student at John Jay College. I am an ACLU Smart Justice team leader um, and a strong advocate for criminal justice reform, Um, mostly this came due to my experience, you know, with the police. Um, so I first started, you know, being involved when I was in about middle school uh, up until the age of 23. Um, and I think Representative Porter always says this, too. Those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Um, so I'm really here just to use my experience and to help others and uh, reform the system. You said that your first experience, again, with the, the justice system was when you were in middle school. What was that like for you? What, what was your support network at the time? Um, I would say I was a troubled, I was a troubled teen, uh, I'm sorry, adolescent. Um, I was raised in a single parent home. Um, and I think for me, I didn't know how to express myself. Um, and a lot of things were just things that were happening within my family. Uh, so I would say around my incarceration centers around my trauma um, as a teen. And it was things that I've never uh, learned how to deal with. Uh, yeah. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, when you were incarcerated and where? And again, what kind of did you get any kind of support when you were when you were incarcerated as well? Um, yeah, so I was incarcerated in Broward County. Um, I was incarcerated here in Connecticut as well. And there, there is, there's over, over 500 barriers um, for people with a criminal record. So when we're talking about preparing, um, I, I don't think that there's really any program that can prepare you, you know, for the 500 for the 500 plus barriers that you're going to be dealing with post incarceration. So the reentry process for me um was a little bit di- difficult. Um I would say I'm privileged in some ways uh due to my family um my family support, but there's just there's really not much you can do. That's why mm-hmm. this bill is so very important because it will help people uh get back on the right path and it's going to open a lot of opportunities for a lot of people. 
Uh, when we talk about, again, different places that you've been incarcerated, again, you were a, a teenager. Mm-hmm. And so when people hear this, uh, they may wonder, oh, well, there was probably a place for her with other teens. But mm-hmm. was that your reality or were you with adult women? Uh, yeah. So I was here in Connecticut um, in Niantic, um, and there's a, a section for uh and for female who are under the age of 18, but literally you are with adult woman, yes. And that must have been hard. Um, it was very difficult. Um, I would say that was one of my lowest points in my life, um, a very lonely place, um, and in fact, very traumatic. I don't, I don't believe for me there was anything rehabilitative about that process um, as a teen or as an adult. Um, yes, it was a very dark place, yeah. So I understand that you uh, got out in 2014. Is that right? Yes. And so you mentioned collateral consequences. We've heard Kel mention this as well, more than 550. So walk us through some of the immediate challenges you had as somebody that had come out of prison with a record. Um, there's, there's, endless, there's endless challenges. There's always, there's always a challenge. And I think a lot of people who have a criminal record have normalized this in some ways, but literally it is a scarlet curse. And when you mention you have a, a, a record or someone finds out, you're always there explaining and explaining, or there's always a no after a no after a no. And I think it's very difficult for people because we are literally limited by um, by our criminal record. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, when it pertains to... Um, employment. Um, there's there's ceilings there. We're locked out of labor markets. When it's uh, for housing, we're locked out of, um, you know, housing. Uh, so I would say for me, I was denied multiple times. Uh, I, when, when the first week I came home, I filled out over 200 applications for jobs. Um, and there was always a no, a no, and a no. Um, we I work with people right now in our campaign who have degrees and are continuously denied professional opportunities. Mm-hmm. Again, you're hearing Shelby Henderson on Where We Live. She's a smart justice advocate with the Connecticut ACLU as we talk about ways that uh, some lawmakers and policy leaders are looking to help ex-offenders uh, once they are on the outside trying to restart their lives. Shelby, you mentioned that uh, you're a graduate student. So you started out at local community college in Hartford. Now you're at the John Jay College of, of Criminal Justice. What has that experience been like for you? Did that help you feel like you needed now to advocate for others? Uh, yeah, I mean, I pride myself on, uh, you know, going to John Jay College and being a fierce advocate for justice, um, as, uh, as we would say. Um, yeah, it definitely has been a great experience uh, at that school, but that hasn't always been my experience. So I originally, when I was studying for my undergraduate degree, we it, there's always a question, have you been convicted uh, of a crime? So at that point, when I originally enrolled in the school, I was told I was going to be on academic uh, probation, uh, not because I had uh, bad grades or anything, but that was difficult. Um, I work alongside Smart Justice members who are literally fighting for their education and have been told that they can't be accepted to a school based off of their criminal record. So does my criminal record mean that I'm not worthy of an education? Like, this is 2020 and we're fighting for education. This is similar, you know, to a lot of the Jim Crow laws um, of the South where once you have a criminal record, you are literally blacklisted um, out of 
an education, labor markets, housing, uh, et cetera. So um, I would say this is this is this is why this bill is so important, and this is why I'm fighting for change. Mm. I understand that you're at John Jay, as we mentioned, but you're hoping to be an attorney. But again, when we talk about barriers, how will that impact you if you want to, you know, again, move on and become an attorney, a license in the state of Connecticut? Yeah, I think there's also barriers there. Um, there's there's definitely barriers there. You know, um, law school applications, that's, that's a question that they also ask you. So, uh, despite if you've been received, if you received the expungement or not, they're asking you uh, for uh, court records. They're asking you for a lot of information. And yes, I think it is um, potential that you may not be able to sit for the bar. Um, yeah, but I'm doing this so that I can fight for people like me. And I again, I think those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And really having someone, an advocate that can understand what you're going through and the implications, you know, th- these are people's lives, right? Um, we fight differently. Um, yes. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Um, have you had experience with the state's criminal justice system? What resources were available to you when you returned home? Again, we want to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jillian's calling from Meriden. Jillian, you're on the show. Hi, yes. Um, I was just calling. I, um, I've worked in the criminal justice system for years. I've worked in group homes and um, at, like, the, at the state um, facilities. And I'm actually currently writing my capstone for my graduate degree on the reentry um, process. And I, though I love this bill and I think it's amazing because I've worked with many families through the expungement process and it is a very difficult one, um, I, I would love to see more change on the front end. I would love to see more change in the funding that programs get because, yes, we have these programs that have been mentioned, but they're very few and far between, and they're very underfunded. A lot of them have to get their own funding. They have to go out and get private funding, um, and I would just love to see more work on connecting the dots for people when they're coming home. And though we can't you know, hit those 500 barriers that she mentioned with one program, we can hit a lot of them if everyone works together and we have a common goal. Well, thank you for your call, uh, Jillian. I wanted to transition now to State Representative Robin Porter, who's with us. She represents Hamden and New Haven. Representative Porter, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, first, uh, what was your response to our caller, Jillian, talking about, again, the need for uh, start starting for help with the front end uh, versus uh, looking at, okay, now what do we do? I absolutely agree with that. Um, I believe that we need to be more preventive and 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 actually making ways for people as they reenter society to make sure that they have the supports in place that they need. That's that's critically important. Um, I heard uh, Kel mention in the sentence inmates, and what that means is they have exhausted their sentence. They are being totally discharged without supervision and. Unfortunately, that also means that they don't have the resources that people coming home on parole and probation have. So there is a tremendous need to fund, and that, that, that's something that I fight for as well. You're um, helping lead this movement behind this collateral consequences bill. We heard a bit about uh, what Shelby experienced. Uh, Kel also laid it out for us for people who are ex-offenders. So tell us what this bill uh, would do. Well, the bill uh, would generally make it a discriminatory employment 
uh, practice for an employer with at least three employees to take certain actions against someone because of their criminal record. Um, and, and that would be refusing to hire or employ the person, barring or discharging the person from employment because of a criminal record and discriminating against the person in pay or in the terms of conditions or privileges associated with employment. Um, how do you respond uh, to some listeners who think, again, that someone who's renting has should have uh, the right to ask that question or if they're looking for a prospective employee? Uh, how do you respond to uh, their concerns? Well, I think the thing that really uh, resonated with me Uh, Dr. Richard Cho was the chair for the the housing subcommittee. And during that time, through data and research, what we found was, even before we were doing the data and research, he actually brought this information to us. A criminal record doesn't dictate anything when it comes to housing. It doesn't make that person any more likely to recommit than someone who has never committed a crime. So I think that's something that people need to really uh, think about. When you were sitting here listening to Shelby's story, you probably met her already at the LOB oh, yes. uh, when she testified before lawmakers or when other members of the Smart Justice uh, Coalition were there. These stories, uh, you hear them time and time again? They're similar? Absolutely. I mean, and in full disclosure, my son is actually a uh, justice-impacted person. So I've had this experience as a mom whose only son went to prison. Mm-hmm. So it's personal. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about that when you when you say it's personal. What what was the experience that, that you saw happening to your son when, when um, he was involved in the criminal justice system and then needed, you know, again, supports to help maybe find a job or where was he going to live? Um, I think the first thing that it made me realize is that, you know, until it happens to you and you have that experience, it you do have a jaded perspective around uh, people who go to prison and commit crimes. Uh, It did change my perspective in the way I saw the way the system working, or should I say not working. And I just think that overall, it's important, and Shelby spoke to this, you know, to have the supports in place, Mm -hmm. the family, the friends, the people that will write to you, uh, come and visit you, uh, make sure that you have money on your commissary that you can call someone when you need to talk to someone, that you keep the the, the relationships and, and the family relationships intact as much as you can. Because in my experience in visiting, oftentimes I felt like I was a criminal having to go through the process of even getting in to see him and to visit with him and to have to sit across a table and not have physical contact. And so there was a lot of different things that I was exposed to that really got my attention and and, and created a passion in me to to address the needs and and to be an authentic voice and to actually give um, amplification to the voices that weren't being heard around these issues. Before I take some calls, you can join us at 888-720-9677. We've uh, spoken a a few times now about the barriers for people to try to find housing or employment. But what about uh, people who are applying uh, for college courses or want to go to university? Do those applications also ask about a criminal record? Uh, Yes. I mean, and you have not just the aspect of education and higher ed. You have car insurance. You have life insurance. Um, you have all credit transactions. I mean, people are impacted on several different levels that impede their ability to actually thrive when they come home. 
Again, you can join us here on Where We Live. Representative Robin Porter in studio with me. Also, Shelby Henderson, uh, who's with uh, the Smart Justice Campaign with the Connecticut ACLU. Doug's calling from Sandy Hook. Doug, you're on the show. Hi, I'm Doug. Um, I was wondering about education opportunities in the prison and is there data at how they affect the cynicism? Um, I do know um, from my, no, I don't know. I'm interested in, I hear that um, people have to pay for their college classes in prison, which really seems backward if it works. And I know that um, people with behavioral issues in the past are often kept out of it. Only a very few get to take advantage. A great question, Doug. Representative Porter. Yes, Doug, I can speak to that personally. My son, uh, my family and I did have to pay out of our pockets for his college education. He was receiving college credits um, while he was away. We are working, and I can say that, you know, I give credit to uh, Commissioner Cook for this, for really pushing to see about getting Pell Grants Mm -hmm. back in effect for uh, people that are currently incarcerated. You mentioned this is the Department of Correction Commissioner. Department of Correction Commissioner. Uh, Roland Cook. Uh, before I take another call, uh, Shelby, I mentioned you're a grad student. So how did you find a way, again, to enroll and pay for school? Um, I relied primarily on uh, student loans to uh, fund my education. Um, yeah. yeah. Again, you can join us uh, on where we live, 888-720-9677. We know from past shows when we talk about higher education, uh, when loans uh, with uh, student debt, another reason you need to find a good-paying job because you want to be able uh, to to pay off that debt and not have it it, uh, follow you for for years. Uh, Rich is calling from Vernon. Rich, you're on the show. Hello. Yes, Rich, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to let you know that um, I'm 61 years old and I'm in a situation that I um, am completely unemployable. In 1990, I was sentenced to uh, an assault, a sexual assault, and in 1998, they passed the Megan's Law, which reached back to 88, which included me on that list. So for the last 17 years... I've pretty much been only able to work three years, and the legislator just is doesn't really want to do anything about anything, and it's kept me completely unemployable. I'm 61 years old now. I don't have much left to work. I have no Social Security. I have no, uh, you know, right now I'm thinking about collecting disability, um, and they have made the law, and people who are on there for child molesting get off in 10 years which was supposed to be for life because it's a first second degree and first degree is on there for life and legislator doesn't really want to change anything and it's put me in a situation where you know um i i I don't know what to do i need help and uh no one seems to want to touch the issue well, Rich, thank you for, for calling in. Uh, State Representative Robin Porter is with us. Uh, she's just one of many uh, legislators in the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, but this touches on something that I think a lot of people wrestle with, and that is there are particular crimes where people can say, you know, you made the mistake, but maybe we could give you a second chance. But then there are other crimes. This is an individual that was convicted of sexual assault where people do not want to give someone a chance uh, even after they've served their time. How do you address that? Uh, We actually have been working really hard to try to address that. But you are correct. There is 
Um, and it's, it's an extremely heavy lift. And I say that because of the lack of political will to address it. And I think, you know, when you say sexual offense, that people automatically think pedophilia or, you know, child molesters. And that's not the case. Every sexual offense is just as different as every criminal offense. Um, we did talk about this on the council and we did a lot of work with the advocates. It is still we're still at an impasse because people are uncomfortable with that. But me personally, um, I say, you know, we have to give people second chances and we can't talk about doing an anti-discriminatory bill on criminal records and then discriminate against people with sexual offenses. So we just have to get to a point where we I don't know how to find a way to make people comfortable with that. Uh, Shelby, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I wanted to add, I think everyone deserves um, the right to education. Everyone deserves the right to uh, affordable housing markets. And I think that we're fighting for opportunities for everyone. People are asking to live meaningful lives and to contribute to society. And I don't think that a criminal record should be a lifetime sentence. I often say that if it wasn't a life sentence going in, it should not be a life sentence coming out. And people should not be perpetually punished you know once they've served the time they say if you do the crime do the time people are doing the time and as this this man has stated he's 61 he's been condemned for decades now and I'm sure he is not the same person he is today that he was when he made this mistake Again, you can join our conversation uh, at Where We Live as we talk about efforts to reform the criminal justice system, um, how ex-offenders are treated once they're on the outside, again, trying to start over. We got a message or a post on Facebook. EJ writes, I was released from Niantic in 2017 at 9 p.m. at the Waterbury Police Station, Mm. dropped off in a gray sweatsuit and a laundry bag with my inmate number. It is now March 2020, and I still can't attain housing due to my criminal record. Uh, I wanted to turn back to to Shelby Henderson. Uh, What can someone like EJ do? Where do they go to get that support? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, it, it is not impossible, but I think these are barriers that a lot of us face. Um, I could say when I was looking for an apartment, I was turned down um, numerous times. Um, and at that point, I was 18 years old, um, a young female, and the only place where I was able to find housing uh, was a rented room where I was the youngest among about 15 other adults. Um, I was one in three three females. Um, so it is difficult, and I find that people with a criminal record are often forced into predatory markets, um, and it is difficult. Housing is housing is is essential when you're trying to reintegrate um, into uh, society, and uh, it, it is difficult. Um, Private renters um, are often, you know, discouraged um, and they don't want to rent to you. I think uh, it has to do a lot with, you know, just educating people that, you know, just because you have a criminal record does not mean that you're not going to pay your rent. It doesn't mean um, it, it really doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. We, I have a, a smart justice team leader that I'm with. She's now 65 plus years and she has never been able to obtain apartment in her name. She's never been able to t- to have an apartment in her name. Um, So sometimes you have to think outside of the box, unfortunately. 
Shelby Henderson is a smart justice advocate with the Connecticut ACLU. Uh, we're running short on time, but I do thank you for coming in today to talk to where we live about your experience and about the work that the Smart Justice Campaign is doing. Thank you, Shelby. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, and I would like to say, you know, I really believe in this bill, and I think this is a strong launch pad uh, to help people live meaningful lives um, so, yeah, call your legislators. And I want to mention, too, that State Representative Robin Porter is going to stick around for us for this last segment. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about reentry measures. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it starts when someone is released from prison. We're actually going to find out what the Connecticut Department of Correction is doing to help offenders when they're on the inside. You can join us as well at Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. This programming note on Monday, we're going to focus another show on coronavirus. Is your child's school closed? Are you a college student sent off campus? Are you now working remotely? We want to hear from you. You can join that conversation on Monday. Uh, today, we've been talking about uh, proposals before the Connecticut General Assembly again uh, to reform the criminal justice system. We heard about uh, some of them, but efforts to help ex-offenders uh, don't necessarily have to begin when someone's released from prison. Joining us by phone now, is Trina Sexton, Director of Reentry Services with the Connecticut Department of Correction, also the DOC. Trina, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so we're hearing a lot about reentry. Uh, that was something that, that started uh, under former Governor Daniel Malloy. So tell me uh, briefly, what are some reentry programs that the DOC has now uh, to help offenders? Um, sure. So um, I, I want to back up one second and just talk about um, Commissioner Cook. He recently unveiled our new strategic plan that outlines a vision for the agency that's focused on human dignity. Um, this is a concept that permeates into our work, our programs, our services, um, our future, and our people. And when it pertains to criminal justice reform, this strategic plan and emphasis on human dignity are the foundation of what we are doing to remove um, barriers to successful reentry, enhance that very important pre-release engagement piece, and work to improve outcomes for individuals and families. Well, so we'd love we'd love to have Commissioner Cook come on for a whole hour to tell us more about that strategic plan as well as other efforts within the DOC. But in terms of, of reentry, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the programs? Sure. So identification is one of our key areas of focus right now. Um, we know that individuals need this for employment, housing, access to entitlement, and treatment. Um, so this work begins approximately three years from end of sentence. We work with individuals to get their birth certificate, Social Security card, and DMV ID. Uh, many people don't know, but we actually have the DMV that comes right into one of our facilities um, to once a month to process IDs for individuals who are getting ready to leave. And since 2017, um, the DOC reentry staff have procured 4,001 birth certificates, 5,288 Social Security cards, 1,446 driver license renewals, and 4,468 non-driver IDs. Um, we do have some challenges right now that we're facing in this that, um, you know, I feel it's important to talk about. Um, in getting some of the birth certificates, we're waiting sometimes eight to ten months from certain jurisdictions. And we're currently working with uh, Chris, Senator Chris Murphy's office to reach a resolution in Puerto Rico because we have a substantial population 
um, approximately 10% of our population who's born in Puerto Rico, and we're not able to get birth certificates for them. Certainly, uh, having those documents in hand is important when somebody is trying to find a place to live and a job. But when we had uh, Kel Lyons on earlier, he talked about uh, the high need for resources for individuals who've had substance abuse in their background, uh, people who are uh, overdosing when they're now on the outside. So what is the DOC doing to connect these people with services? So uh, one of the key issues that we're facing, especially with, um, you know, a population that has a substance abuse history, is homelessness. Um, Our current figures indicate that we have about 770 incarcerated individuals who reported that they were homeless or had marginal housing upon admission into the system. Um, A recent data match between our population and the state's homeless management information system uh, definitely showed that there is a relationship between um, homelessness and incarceration. Uh, And that's not just in Connecticut, that's nationwide. Um, So to give an overview of what we do, we work closely with United Way 211 um, and our addiction services department uh, to uh, pretty much hook up people with services uh, prior to their release. Um, for those that are homeless, we facilitate a two-on-one shelter call. Um, but, you know, individuals can wait one to three days and sometimes as much as two weeks um, for placement in a shelter. Um, and that's, you know, that's a pretty significant reality. Uh, what we are doing to address this, you know, we are involved in a number of committees uh, to address homelessness, such as the Reaching Home Campaign, the Governor's Task Force on Housing and Supports for Vulnerable Populations. Um, we work closely with United Way 211 and the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness to address the current need, and we are brainstorming measures of how we can implement um, upstream work to uh, really meet the needs of these of the people who are returning to the communities. Uh, you're hearing Trina Sexton, Director of Reentry Services at the Connecticut Department of Correction. I wanted to turn back to State Representative Robin Porter, who represents Hamden and New Haven. Uh, when I asked uh, Trina about reentry services uh, and how they start within uh, state prisons, what is your response to some of what Trina has said? Um, I'm I'm interested in knowing. Hi, Trina. How are you? Hi, ma'am. How are you? Um, well, um, I know that we are still getting complaints about DOC ID and things like that. So I'm really happy to hear that they are um, setting up and having DMV come in because that is a real issue for folks. Um, and I've heard that complaint recently. And, and these are folks that have been home. So it's not really uh, the people that she's talking about currently, but I'm excited that they're addressing that issue because it is a, a tremendous issue. And in terms of homelessness, we yes. just got a couple minutes left. I wanted to say that, you know, just as impacted people that are reentering society, they are 10 times more likely to be homeless. And when you talk about, you know, public safety, the public is is less safe when we have people that can't provide shelter for themselves. The, the, the public is less safe when we have people that can't go to work and sustain themselves and, and pay bills and put a, head, uh, um, a roof over their head and food on the table. So I wanted to talk about that, but I also wanted to touch on the mental health piece because um, Yale Transition Clinic does tremendous work around uh, the reentering population, uh, Emily Wang, Lisa Puglisi, Jerry Smart, and you actually have to be a formerly incarcerated person in order to even work on this transition clinic. So that speaks to the importance of having experience around, lived experience around the issues of homelessness, uh, lack of housing, lack of employment, uh, the mental health issues and the supports, medication, diabetics. I mean, people come home, they need uh, dialysis. 
So those those are the things that I just wanted to make sure I got out there because DOC is doing a tremendous job in tr- um, trying to help bridge these gaps. Well, we're almost out of time, but there seems to be, you know, with the, the state budget issues, Representative Porter, over the last few years, an over-reliance on nonprofits filling the gap, but not being, they're having their funding restored to where they were in previous years. So, so what can be done about that? I think that the, the the first thing that needs to be done is that legislators need to hear from their constituents. Calls need to be made, emails, people need to show up for public hearings or just come to visit their legislator to express to them their concerns around this and how it's not just impacting a person that's been convicted. A conviction impacts family, family impacts community, and community impacts this state at large. And if we would put people back to work, I think we would have the revenues needed to make all of these programs work and keep the supports in place that folks need it. Well, I want to thank State Representative Robin Porter for joining us again, uh, who serves Hamden and New Haven, uh, one of the supporters of this collateral consequences bill. Uh, we'll see where it goes uh, this session. We thank you, Representative Porter, for your time. Yes, thank you. And that's House Bill 5389, <laughs> an act concerning the collateral consequences of a criminal record. Also, I want to thank Trina Sexton, Director of Reentry Service at the Connecticut Department of Correction. We'll be reaching out to the DOC, hopefully to have their commissioner on uh, for, for a full hour so we have uh, more time to talk about these initiatives and more. Trina, thank you. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.